snakes alive. No, you don't need to go looking around the uh, room for any, we trust and hope. But I wonder if when there was a recent report of a snake found in pipes in Auckland, that with me you gave a bit of a sigh of relief when it was found to be dead. And whenever there's one of those TV reports they put on towards the end of the news of one being found in someone's bathroom in Australia, I reaffirm my commitment to remain a Kiwi. I think my closest personal encounter with a real snake in the wild was while camping in the south of France. And I recall the dilemma of being the one sent to fetch the water for the day from the tank. And there was a snake neatly curled up on it asleep in the sun. We had a bit of a discussion. And I think I came back later, <laughs> the good one. But it has to be said that we humans have a somewhat ambivalent relationship with snakes. And the biblical record reminds us of that from, of course, the story of the Garden of Eden onwards. So just what does it mean when John puts those words on the lips of Jesus as part of his nighttime discussion with Nicodemus? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John's referencing a, a cryptic little story from the book of Numbers, where the people of Israel are out in the wilderness, uh, grumbling about their lot, as was quite often their want, and were punished, it seems, by snakes being sent among them to bite them. And the people then, of course, cry out to Moses for help. Moses appeals to God. And Moses is told to fashion a bronze serpent on a pole, and that if the people look upon the serpent on the pole, they will be healed. And here, I think... Put it on one slide. Thanks, Stephen. One slide. Not going to do it. Mine off. Can you just move it on one? Yeah, we've got it. There it is. Okay. So there you can see um, it's a modern sculpture, actually, of the serpent on a pole. And this is on Mount Nebo in Jordan, uh, where um, there's a church of St. Moses and where it's thought that Moses looked out over the promised land. But you can see the uh, image. So in the original uh, story there in Numbers, snakes are seen both as a symbol of divine judgment, but also, strangely enough, as a source of healing. And that is something shared, of course, with Greek mythology, where the cult of the healing god Asclepius used the symbol of a snake twined around a staff. And, of course, that's a symbol still used in many medical contexts today, uh, medical alert bracelets and the like. So the bronze serpent on a pole serves a dual purpose. The people of Israel had to look at it. They had to confront the reality of the consequences of their rebellion before God and Moses, uh, their forgetfulness of the great rescue from slavery they've undergone, their I want to go back to Egypt grumbling, their mistrust of God's provision and promised care of their future. And so they look at the serpent and see the consequences of their wrong actions and attitudes. But the snake becomes also for them a strange symbol of God's healing, God's provision of a way of salvation for them. Apparently, ironically, it was using an Egyptian remedy for snake bite. So there you go. But it was like God saying to them, you want to go back to Egypt? Well, here's an Egyptian remedy for you. 
but trust me for your healing instead. And I think it's not difficult to see now how that strange little story came to be seen as a foreshadowing of the saving power of Christ on the cross. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And as so often in John's gospel, that word lifted up has a double meaning. Yes, Jesus will be lifted up physically on the cross, but he will also be lifted up and exalted by God through his death and resurrection, expressing the great love of God for the world and the Son's mission to bring the world healing. So this Sunday in Lent is a good time for us to come again to gaze upon the cross and to acknowledge its dual focus as well. It is a time to remember, and we're remembering as a city at this time, our complicity in the evils of this world that nailed Christ to the cross, our own propensities, our own temptations, our own selfishness. Lent is a time, as John puts it in stark contrast between the light and the dark, to let things lurking in the shadows to come out into the light of God's gaze. But it is also time to see that God's gaze upon us is the look of love. It is the love of the crucified who says, Father, forgive, who comes not to condemn, but to save and to bring us the healing riches of salvation. Many of us probably learnt John 3.16, first of all, at Sunday school or Bible in schools, for God so loved the world. And uh, I recall getting a much coveted and contested bookmark, which had a cross on it that glowed in the dark, uh, which was very good technology for the 60s, uh, for being able to recite John 3.16. And that verse rolls off the tongue. But we need to hear that for God so loved the world, when many today see the church as standing against so much in the world, or of saying no to the world. And John's gospel sometimes can seem to support that rather negative view of the world with his preference for quite stark dualistic language, contrasting light and dark, the world and the spirit. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God's purposes for the world are for good, for love, for salvation, for healing, and for life. And that's what pours two out of our epistle reading for today from Ephesians. It's just about one great big long sentence in the Greek, but it's a real lyrical expression of praise and thanksgiving. It's sort of pouring over like, like harvest um, bounties. It's that thanksgiving to God for the great love with which he loved us, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You can hear it rolling uh, off the tongue with those wonderful images. And then how are we called to respond for we are what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Other translations use a different word. Uh, God, We are God's workmanship or God's craftsmanship. 
And in a lovely image, I think we are God's poem, because the word actually used in the Greek is poema, um, from which we get eventually our word poem. And there's a lovely uh, modern translation that talks about heaven's poetry etched in human lives. Heaven's poetry etched in human lives. And I like the way that translations like that affirm for each one of us that our life in God's service will look different. It will reflect our own personality and skills and talents, whether we've grown heaps of stuff in the garden or whether, like me, you turtled off to the supermarket and uh, went to the produce section. Uh, I did have two tomatoes, though, James, so that was, you know, I didn't do so badly. But whatever, we pray that our lives will all reflect and proclaim that promise that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. I was struck again yesterday as in watching the live stream of the mosque attack memorial service, as some of you may have done, by two things. Uh, firstly, one could not but be moved by the expressions of grief still so raw for lives lost and the, the, the stories told of partners, of, of parents, of children, of loved family members lost. And it was deeply poignant but important to have their names read of those 51 lives and to see photos and descriptions of who they were and what they meant to their families, both here and overseas. And I was moved also that in the eloquent words of those who spoke on behalf of the Muslim community, those bereaved, those so badly injured, those profoundly affected by what they saw and experienced that day. And yet the words that dominated were not words of, of vengeance or judgment, but they were words of love for family, and friends and community. They were words of gratitude. They were words of grace and of mercy. They were words promoting healing and unity. They were words of prayer. They were words praying the national anthem that is common to us Kiwis all. And it felt to me like they'd looked evil in the face, just like that snake on the pole. But then amazingly, I think, had been able even to begin to look beyond that to the outpouring of help and concern and love that followed and the attempts, uh, amazing, incredible attempts to bring healing to broken bodies and souls and minds and that, of course, go on and that that was what they were committed to live out as they walk in painful hope together with us into the future in this city. So today we as Christians gather before the cross and you'll see in that sculpture, it is a modern sculpture and it's an Italian sculptor who's tried to combine those images of both the, the bronze serpent but also of the cross, of Jesus on the cross. And so we see on one hand the consequences of evil and of our inhumanity towards one another, which we're so aware of, we see them laid there on Jesus, the Son of Man, our representative, crucified. And yet too there on the cross and coming down, we see that self-giving love of the Son of God, 
and we see God sharing our world, our griefs, our pains, absorbing all that suffering into God, and then pouring out healing and mercy and love and grace come mingling down into the world God loves with everlasting love. For God so loved the world. We Christians have often been discouraged in the past, I think, from being too worldly, seeing that as somehow compromised with the world, as if we're somehow contaminated by the world and need to keep ourselves apart from it. But it's been suggested we need a new word, that we as Christians perhaps should not be worldly, but rather worldy, taking out that second L, and I quite like that word, worldy. So think about being a worldy Christian, those who, like God, so love the world and all its peoples. Those who, like the Son of God, incarnate ourselves, make ourselves flesh in this world to live out the healing love of God as part of the body of Christ as we are now. Those who write heaven's poetry etched on human lives. May this be our way of life this Lent as God's people in this part of God's beloved world. You and I be the singers. Amen.